Hi, welcome to the New Covenant Presbyterian Church Sermon Podcast, a congregation of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, the OPC, in the San Francisco Bay Area. Well, brothers and sisters, please turn with me now in your Bibles to Psalm 109. Psalm 109, as we continue to make our way through the first section of Book 5 of the Psalter, we now come this evening to Psalm 109. If you would please stand as we honor the reading of God's holy word. Psalm 109. To the chief musician, a psalm of David. Do not keep silent, O God of my praise, for the mouth of the wicked and the mouth of the deceitful have opened against me. They have spoken against me with a lying tongue. They have also surrounded me with words of hatred and fought against me without a cause. In return for my love, they are my accusers, but I give myself to prayer. Thus they have rewarded me evil for good and hatred for my love. Set a wicked man over him and let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is judged, let him be found guilty and let his prayer become sin. Let his days be few. Let another take his office. Let his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. Let his children continually be vagabonds and beg. Let them seek their bread also from their desolate places. Let the creditor seize all that he has and let strangers plunder his labor. Let there be none to extend mercy to him, nor let there be any to favor his fatherless children. Let his posterity be cut off and in the generation following, let their name be blotted out. Let the iniquity of their fathers be remembered before the Lord, and let not the sin of his mother be blotted out. Let them be continually before the Lord, that he may cut off the memory of them from the earth, because he did not remember to show mercy, but persecuted the poor and the needy, that he might even slay the broken in heart. As he loved cursing, so let it come to him. As he did not delight in blessing, so let it be far from him. As he clothed himself with cursing as with his garment, so let it enter his body like water and like oil into his bones. Let it be to him like the garment which covers him and for a belt with which he girds himself continually. Let this be the Lord's reward to my accusers and to those who speak evil against my person. But you, O Lord, O God, the Lord, deal with me for your namesake. Because your mercy is good, deliver me. For I am poor and needy, and my heart is wounded within me. I am gone like a shadow when it lengthens. I am shaken off like a locust. My knees are weak through fasting, and my flesh is feeble from lack of fatness. I also have become a reproach to them. When they look at me, they shake their heads. Help me, O Lord my God. O save me according to your mercy, that they may know that this is your hand, that you, Lord, have done it. Let them bless, but you curse. When they arise, let them be ashamed, but let your servant rejoice. Let my accusers be clothed with shame, and let them cover themselves with their own disgrace as with a mantle. I will greatly praise the Lord with my mouth. Yes, I will praise him among the multitude, for he shall stand at the right hand of the poor to save him from those who condemn him. Thus far the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Let's go before the Lord once again in prayer. 
Oh, Father, as we come to this passage, which is in very many ways difficult, difficult to understand how we are to appropriate uh, these sorts of, of words, this kind of cursing of the enemy, help us, Lord, to, to be able to, to, to know wisdom, to be able to understand how these things apply to us, how we uh, can pray like this in a godly fashion, and also, Lord, that in so doing, that we would be enabled to to pray for your de- the, the deliverance of your people from the oppressor, and even to be able to pray that you would curse those who oppress your people. We ask this in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 1, section 7, it says that all things in Scripture are not alike, plain in themselves, and they're not clear in all in, in exactly the same way. It's part of a section in the Westminster Confession of Faith that does affirm that the Scriptures are clear. They do speak um, in some way or another concerning the things that are necessary for us to know for salvation. In some place, everything that's necessary for us to know is spoken of very, very clearly. But there are some passages of Scripture that are difficult. You may uh, have this experience where there are sometimes you open your Bible, you're reading it, and you think, what in the world am I supposed to do with this? How is this supposed to apply to me? How can I understand uh, what's going on? And perhaps this passage or passages like this is one of those is one of those kinds of passages that you have this experience with, where you come to a passage where there there is such intense cursing of an enemy, and you think, how how am I to understand this? Is it is it really right for a Christian to call down curses upon his enemies? Is it right? for a Christian to do this. What am I to do with that? And that's exactly what we have here. We have here recorded in Psalm 109, by divine inspiration, a great and terrible curse, which David is calling down upon all of his enemies. He's clearly being persecuted, as was very often the case in his life. At a number of different cases, points in his life, he was persecuted without cause uh, by those who should have loved him and by those whom he himself had shown love to. And yet very often, uh, he was uh, he, people returned uh, wickedness and evil for his love. And at some point, then it became right and good for him to call down curses upon his enemies and to curse those uh, whom, uh, who were trying to oppress him. And so as we read these kind of things, it can be a difficult question. Uh, are we not to love our enemies? At what point could it possibly be appropriate for us as Christians to to ask God to curse those who are oppressing us? Those are some of the the natural questions that come for a passage like this. And it'll be these kinds of questions that we'll seek uh, to answer this evening. And hopefully it will be instructive to us with how we are to view unbelief and how we are to view prayer with regard to this, this kind of thing. Uh, remember where we are now in the context. We've been looking at the beginning of... Uh, book 5 in the Psalms. And we looked a couple weeks ago at Psalm 107, which deals with the idea of return from exile. Book 4 ends with a number of Psalms which speak of the history of Israel, and it ends at the end of Psalm 106 with God's people in exile. And then Psalm 107 then begins with the return from exile. And that is to signal then the uh, the the coming of the salvation which would come through the Lord Jesus Christ. We looked at that a couple of weeks ago. Return from exile is language that deals with, that is related to the final salvation in the Messiah. Now, after 
this initial psalm, which speaks of the salvation which is coming in the Lord Jesus Christ. Then we have three psalms of David, and we looked at the first one last week, and now we have the middle one this week, Psalm 108, Psalm 109, and Psalm 110. And in a lot of ways, these three psalms go together. Psalm 108 deals with a petition for deliverance from God's enemies and for the expansion of his kingdom. And it's a a beautiful prayer that's done uh, in accordance with God's promises and with God's character. Then we have the humiliation of David in Psalm 109. The humiliation of David as he's clearly being uh, oppressed and is is, uh, fearful for his life. And then we have the exaltation of not just David, but particularly in Psalm 110 of the Messiah. And we'll see because of, of those kinds of hints that everything around Psalm 109 is related to um, to the Messiah, that really what Psalm 109 is in itself a prophecy about the Messiah as well. So we have in Psalms 108, 9, and 10 then, petitions for the advancement of the kingdom of God, the humiliation of David and the Messiah, and then the exaltation of the Messiah in Psalm 110. And so we're going to be looking at um, this middle psalm, this middle psalm of David here this evening where uh, David calls down great and terrible curses upon all of his enemies. And what we see from this psalm is that it is actually not wrong. And in fact, in many times, it is right to pray for salvation from God's enemies through the destruction of the wicked. That it is actually right and good to pray for salvation from God's enemies through the destruction of the wicked and to even hope and pray for that destruction. That's what what we're going to see this evening. Now, we're going to look at this under three headings. First, before we get into the details of the text, there are a couple of important introductory questions that we need to ask, um, particularly just because this this question is so difficult. How is it that we are to understand uh, Christians calling down curses upon others? So there are a number of preliminary questions that we'll try to answer. And then we'll look at the cursing of the wicked in verses 1 through 20, and then um, the salvation of the righteous in verses 21 through 31. So... So we'll do some introductory questions and then uh, the cursing of the wicked, verses 1 through 20, and then the salvation of the righteous in verses 21 through 31. So a number of of things to consider before we get into the details of the text then. How are we to understand and use psalms which speak about cursing enemies? How are we to do that? Is this vindictive? Aren't we supposed to be loving our enemies? Is how in the, how is are these psalms consistent with the New Testament teaching that we are to turn the other cheek, that we are to pray for those who persecute us and the like? Well, a few things that we can say at the beginning. First is it's important to notice that in this psalm that the psalmist is not acting out to destroy those who hate him. He is not uh, not the one who takes vengeance into his own hands. But he's the one who, when it is appropriate, takes his requests and his prayers to God. And we see this all throughout the life of David. It's something that's very consistently in the life of David. You remember with Saul, who was persecuting him without cause, um, clearly David was in the right and Saul had no reason uh, to persecute David. Uh, When Saul was persecuting him, David multiple times had the opportunity to kill Saul and to take vengeance into his own hands. And he did it. And he did not do that to such an extent. I mean, it's such easy opportunities and was so clearly being pursued to death that it really was an amazing thing for all of those who were around him that to think that 
um, that David would refrain from stretching out his hand against the Lord's anointed. You think of, of Saul when he was in the cave and, and uh, David cuts off the hem of his robe. Or when he's asleep in his camp and David goes all the way up to Saul in the camp and Saul doesn't wake up. We see clearly from all these things that David is not acting out against those who oppress him. But he, he does uh, pray that God would give him justice. And so um, this is even psalms like this are not saying that we ought to um, avenge ourselves. Uh, vengeance is for the Lord, and we give it over to him. But then the next question then is, well, should we pray this? Is it right for us to pray this even as New Testament Christians? And the answer to this is yes, is, is yes. God is glorified through his just judgment of the wicked. And very often in life, it is through the judgment of the wicked that God's people are preserved and delivered. And so, yes, we need to pray for our enemies. We do want to pray that they would, for instance, be converted. But if God is not going to convert them, then we do need to pray that God would destroy them, that God would destroy all of those who uh, stretch out their hands to destroy God's people. Uh, As God pours out his judgment on those who do not obey his gospel, God's people are both delivered And God himself is glorified. This is the public vindication of the people of God. And this is very often what's in doubt. Um, This is the same thing that happened with the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, he was put on trial. And if God did not act in some way to vindicate him, everyone would have thought, well, this man just died a normal criminal's death. Uh, And yet uh, the the, the scriptures we see uh, through uh, the resurrection of the dead, God acted so as to vindicate the Lord Jesus Christ uh, from all of those who accused him falsely. And very often, um, in a similar way, it is through the, 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 the judgment of the wicked that the, that the righteous are vindicated in this life and all understand and come to recognize that God is the defender of his people. And so, if someone is constantly mistreating you in this life because you are a Christian, if you are slandered and abused and and whatever else might come against you, it is actually a right and good thing that you would pray that God would vindicate you by bringing down the wicked person, that he would vindicate you in this way, that you would be granted deliverance from the oppressor, that in, and that in this way, then, uh, God's glory would be seen. And this is the reason why these things are still applicable is because of the reality, and we looked at this some earlier this morning, the reality of the continuing influence of Genesis 3.15, that there is enmity between the woman and the serpent and between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And this will always be the case. There will always be a seed of the serpent that is oppressing the seed of the woman. And it will always be the case that the godly, the seed of the woman, will need to pray for deliverance. We don't take it into our own hands. We pray to God, and God is the one who gives the victory. Now, I've, I've noted a, a qualification at this point. I um, just want to make it explicit and emphasize it. We do pray first for the conversion of those who would oppress us. Um, this is the, the first thing we pray for. I think one of the reasons why this is done less in the Old Testament is because the Spirit had not been poured out like it was at Pentecost. And so in the Old Testament, where there was less 
there were less conversions in general because the Spirit was not granting faith uh, to those who heard the Word of God. Even within Israel, faith was a relatively rare thing. Um, so how much how much more rare was it for uh, the, the nations around the people of God that were oppressing them? Uh, because of this, that the Spirit had not been poured out, there was and there was less of a situation where people could be converted, um, that aspect of the prayer is very often overlooked. In our own day, the only qualification then with praying things like this is we do pray first for the for the conversion of others. Like I mentioned in the in the pastoral prayer that the apostle Paul was converted as who was previously a persecutor of the church. And so we see a number of times, even throughout history, where those who persecute Christians end up becoming uh, Christians themselves. And so God does act like that more regularly now in the New Testament, in the age of the Spirit, when um, when God's kingdom is going forth and expanding. But yet, nevertheless, it is still good and right for God's people to pray these kinds of things. Now, the second thing that we need to deal with in terms of a preliminary question is, how does this psalm relate to David? How does it relate to Christ, and how does it relate to you? Now, I asked this question. I, I mentioned a, a little bit about this in the introduction. I asked this question, though, because in Acts chapter 1, verse 20, uh, verse 8 of this psalm is quoted, and it's spoken of as if it were a prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when you read the psalm, it seems to be a psalm of David, and he's speaking in the first person. So the question is then, how is this psalm related to David, and how is it related to Christ? Or to put it a different way, who is this psalm about? Is it about David or is it about Christ? Is it about David as the king who lived in the 11th century BC? Or is it a, a prophecy about the Lord Jesus Christ? And the answer to that question is it is actually about both of them. It is about both of them. Now, how could this be the case? And how could an Old Testament reader understand that this were that this is in fact both about David and about the coming Messiah. There are a number of, of clues that are given all throughout the Old Testament that point to the reality that David himself is a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as a type of the Lord Jesus Christ, he then becomes a prophecy in his life about the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in the Old Testament, this is something that was very common. God orders institutions, people, and events to foreshadow his son. That's the way God ordered things. Uh, institutions, you think of the, the Levitical sacrifice, the Levitical system, um, the priesthood, all of that foreshadows the Lord Jesus Christ. Particular people, think Moses, Noah, David, and events, think of the Passover, the Exodus. All of these kinds of things are meant to be a foreshadow of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so there are, and there are even a number of links within the Bible itself that show that this is the case. And so, for instance, with this, think of of uh, first with the the prophecy of the coming Messiah. One of the the early ones in Genesis chapter forty nine verse ten, where we see that the 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 Messiah is described as a ruler who will come from the tribe of Judah. This is then later on expanded in the Balaam oracles in Numbers chapter twenty four, where we see that there is a star that's rising. Um, it's where we get the idea of like the star of David. Um, Numbers chapter 24, the, this king who will have a scepter and have the obedience of the nations. Then we, so we have this expectation even before David's time that there will be, that the Messiah will be a king who will come from the tribe of Judah. Then we have David who comes as someone who is from the tribe of Judah, who becomes a king, 
who is then called a king after God's own heart, you start to think, well, maybe this is even even the Messiah himself. He very quickly, we read, we understand that he's not the Messiah, and yet he's given a covenant, a promise that that the Messiah will be from his own seed, that this, the Messiah himself will be a son of David, and he will have a kingdom that will last forever. And so there are there are a number of links then that David has with the prophecies of the Messiah. And then even in other places then in the prophets, as they are thinking about uh, and prophesying about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, they often related to David and to the promises of, of David. So even as David was a shepherd, so too the coming Messiah was often described as a king who would shepherd the people of God. And so he's very much like David. The Messiah, the David himself, was described as one who is a man after God's own heart, which is surely something which would also be true of the Messiah himself. And then also, even beyond that, in a number of places in the prophets, the prophets prophesy about the Messiah by calling him David. They call him David. And there's actually, in those instances, no reference to David, the the historical figure, but only to the Messiah. So one of those places um, is in Hosea, um, Hosea chapter 3. In Hosea chapter 3, verse 5, in a prophecy that is wholly future, only about David, or only about the Messiah, hundreds of years after David, Hosea writes this, afterward, after the return from exile, after the children of Israel shall seek and shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, they shall fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. At the end of days, the people of God will return from exile and they will seek David. They will seek David. So the Messiah himself is called a new David. And all of these things all throughout the Bible, there's a number of other places where this happens in a couple of places in Ezekiel chapter 34, verses 23 to 25, also chapter 37, verses 24 and 25. And these things provide a link such that the entire life of David then becomes a great prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ. The pattern of David's life must be then the pattern of the life of the, the, of the Lord Jesus Christ. David's life becomes a prophecy of the coming Messiah. And so how are these things then related to David and how are they related to Christ and how are they related to you? David truly prayed, prayed this in his life and yet because his life as a whole is a prophecy about the Lord Jesus Christ, this is also a prophecy about Christ and it was meant to be recognized as such by all uh, of the godly people of God that the pattern for kingship established by David and others, Joseph uh, and others is humiliation and then exaltation that there's going to be this enmity there's going to be this oppression and the king after going through a period of humiliation will finally be exalted and because this then relates to the lord jesus christ it relates to you as one who is in the lord jesus christ that is to say as the people of this world have hated the lord jesus jesus christ so too they will hate you and Insofar as there is that continuity, those who hate Christ hate you because you are in Christ. This then becomes a prayer that you yourself can pray to God. So that's those are some introductory questions. Can we pray this prayer? Yes. Is this about David or Christ? It is actually, in fact, about both. So let's look now at verses 1 through 20 as we look at some of the details of the cursing of the wicked. 
this particular section in verses 1 through 20 is further divided into three parts. In verses 1 through 5, uh, David recounts um, what the wicked have done against him and then what he has done uh, to them. What are what is it that the wicked have done to him? And notice if you if you read uh, and if you were paying attention during the, the reading in verses one through five, the main thing that the wicked have done against David is they have uh, spoken against him. Notice for the mouth in verse two, the mouth of the wicked and the mouth of the deceitful have opened against me. They have spoken against me with lying words. They have surrounded me with words of hate and fought me without without a cause. Even verse three, when it says fought me without cause, this is likely speaking about uh, words in light of um, what was they were, in light of what comes before. Even then, in verse four, they are called. David calls these people his accusers. They are uh, those who speak against him, and this is clearly causing David. Uh, great pain and consternation, um, and, and even it appears to be even making it so that his his life is in jeopardy because of the words of those who are speaking against him. And one of the things that we see from just even this opening with how difficult life is made for David because of the words of these people who hate him is that words matter. Words matter. You know, uh, very false is the statement that sticks and stones can break my bones, but words can never hurt me. Words can do tremendous damage. And so, brothers and sisters, even as we begin to think about uh, David's cursing of the enemies, we have to recognize that because of the way that that the enemies of David um, hurt him so badly with their words, it's a great reminder to us that we must always be careful with the way that we speak to others. It is greatly important. And it's something that we ought to recognize very quickly as Christians, as we are those who benefit primarily, first and foremost, from the word of God. We, we ourselves know the benefit of words spoken. Surely if words can benefit us as much as they do, then they can also be a great pain to us. And so David describes this. This is the main thing that's happened to him. There are these uh, wicked accusers who are coming against him, and they are, are making it so even his life is in jeopardy because of the words um, of these people. And notice here, these words which are spoken against him are wicked words, words of hatred that uh, are completely unjustified. David is being uh, spoken of wrongly, uh, even though he himself has loved his enemies. He has, in fact, loved them. He has, in fact, prayed for them. But it's come to the point now where he is now at the, at the, at the edge of his life. And the same is actually true with the Lord Jesus Christ as well. That there was no words of deceit found in the Lord Jesus Christ's mouth, he himself was perfectly righteous, and yet he was uh, he was sentenced to death on the basis of false words which were spoken of him by ungodly men. He was attacked without cause and put to death in uh, great conformity then to the prophecy found um, in this hundred and ninth psalm. And so, after David, then. Um, David and then prophesying of the Lord Jesus Christ speaks in the first five verses about what the wicked have done to him. That then becomes the basis for him then saying uh, the, this this lengthy curse, which uh, begins at verse six and goes through, through verse fifteen, and really in some ways continues all the way on um, to verse twenty. And here we have just a blistering curse, which uh, the psalmist calls down upon uh, his enemies, and particularly here we have a narrowing of the curse such that um, there's a focus on one particular person. There seems to be one person above all the rest who have 
who's betrayed um, David at this point. And even we see then that the same thing happens with the Lord Jesus Christ. There were many who were speaking against the Lord Jesus Christ, but it was Judas himself, the one person who actually betrayed him. Now, these curses are so strong uh, that many commentators, at least several commentators, actually think that what David is doing here is that after verse 5, he's no longer recording his own words from verses 6 to 20, but he's actually recording the words of his enemies that they spoke against him. And so that's the way that um, some of these things are explained. You know, how could it be that that such great curses can be called down upon enemies? And some people say, like, well, it, it, it can't be. David must be recording the words of his enemies against him. But this is this is clearly not the case. Um, as bad as the curses are, they are, in fact, the words of David, which we see from the way in which um, particularly verse 8 is applied in the New Testament, uh, that it is speaking of. Uh, Judas, the curses falling on Judas. So it's Christ calling curses upon Judas is the way this is applied um, in the New Testament. So it's not only even just David, but it even is the Lord Jesus Christ that can say all these things um, about uh, Judas. Now look at, if we just look at a brief overview of the curses and how uh, these things play out, notice there is a, a great emphasis on um, generations, gener- the the family of this, of this wicked man that uh, the, the curse is to affect his wife, his children, his mother, his father at various points all throughout. It affects all of his possessions. Uh, the, the psalmist here is praying that all of the possessions of, uh, of this person be taken. Even the memory of him is going to be blotted out. Uh, let everything that he does be turned to sin. And then uh, famously from verse 8, let another man take his office, which is then applied to uh, the reason why the apostles in Acts chapter 1, um, replace Judas with another apostle. All these things show just a, a terrible um, cursing against the enemies of uh, God's people. And e- as uncomfortable as these kinds of things can make us feel, we have to recognize that this is, in fact, a godly thing to do. And think about it. It's, it's, it is in line with the word of God itself. Remember what... Um, what uh, God told Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, as part of the, the early promises and foundational promises to Abraham and for the people of God, he says that uh, those who bless you, I will bless, and those who curse you, I will curse. Now, if this is part of the promise which Abraham, uh, which God gave to Abraham, then surely it would be right for Abraham praying in accordance with the promises of God to pray for the curse of all those who curse him. And this is exactly uh, what the psalmist here is doing. And so even just a a couple of examples of how this can be done, even even in our own day. Think of like years ago when ISIS was in such strong power. They were killing Christians and they they seemed to be expanding their their power. Uh, It would be right and good to pray that God would destroy such a group. Or think of uh, places like North Korea, where Christians are often imprisoned and and put to death and killed. It's right and good to pray that that government would be thrown down. Again, it's not that we would act to to make those things things happen um, as, as the church, but it is that we do pray for those things. So we pray, Lord, bring them down, remove them from power, let them be cursed, let them bear the full weight of this curse, Uh, let them feel your own wrath. Show yourself mighty in judgment of them, 
or convert them. Show yourself mighty in judging them or show yourself mighty in their conversion. This is uh, a godly and right thing to do. And so then, as this, this curse continues in, in verses 16 through 20, the cursing continues, but there is a slightly different focus and emphasis. As the psalmist begins to pray that there would be a curse that would come upon the ungodly, and particularly that it would match their own deeds and actions. So after saying things like, you know, their, let their name be blotted out uh, forever, it is said that in verse 16, because he did not remember to show mercy, but persecuted the poor needy man, that he might slay even them, even it might even slay the broken in heart. He loved cursing, let it come upon him. He hated blessing, let it be far from him. So as he has done, so do to him, O Lord. And this is a, an important part of even this, this kind of prayer. David is not praying vindictively in the sense of he just wants all of the, the people who hate him to be cursed, but rather he is praying that God would show forth his justice. Not that he would even give them beyond what, what is their due, but that he would give them their due. That even as they have done to others, so that it would be done to them. Even as God promised to curse those who curse his people and to bless those who bless his people. This is even the way that David concludes in verse 20. Let this be the Lord's reward to my accusers and to those who speak evil against my person. Let it be that all those who will curse me, let them receive the curse of God in accordance with the promises of God. And how true is this of the Lord Jesus Christ as well? Is it not a good thing that those who hate the Lord Jesus Christ, that they would be cursed for their hatred? Is it not a right and a good thing because of the greatness the purity, the glory, and the majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ, that anyone who would dare to curse one so great that he himself would be cursed. Now, let's say you have you have cursed the Lord Jesus Christ. You can be you can be saved if you will turn to him in repentance and faith. That is true. But if not, it is a perfectly right and good thing that someone who has done something so awful that they would in fact receive this this curse from God himself. Now, there's a slight change then in verses 21 through 31. After David then finishes this curse upon his enemies, he then uh, has a petition, particularly for the salvation and deliverance of the righteous. And this is where we see that the, that the prayer for the cursing of the enemies of God is not um, even mostly for the sake of their cursing, but it is related to the deliverance and the salvation of God's people. We see this is, uh, this is structured um, in this way. In verses 21 and 26, there is a particular, a particular petition for salvation from the hand of their enemies, from the enemies of, of David. And then in verses, then from verses 22 through 25, so it's, it's petition, and then 22 through 25 deals with the, the grounds or the reason why uh, the psalmist is to be saved. And then there's petition and then purpose. So there's a petition and some sort of explanation, then petition and then some sort of explanation. That's the way uh, the passage is broken up. But the two petitions then are in verse 21 and then in verse 26. Notice what they say. But you, O God, the Lord, deal with me for your namesake, because your mercy is good, deliver me. Deliver me for the sake of the glory of your own name. Verse 26, help me, O Lord, my God. O save me according to your mercy. Save me, deliver me according to your mercy for your own namesake. 
clearly, even in these petitions, uh, it's not it's not vengeance and revenge for the sake of that, but it is for the sake of the glory of God. Show yourself to be my God and my deliverer in the way that you deliver me from the hand of all those who hate me. Even as he's calling down curses upon his enemies, he is doing it in a God-centered way. He is praying for the deliverance of the godly for the sake, not even of himself, ultimately, but for the sake of the glory of God. It is, of course, for his own benefit, but is ultimately for the sake of the glory of God. And look with me then again, then at the, the two things that fall. So we have the first petition and then reasons why God is to answer it. And then the second petition and then the purpose that follows. Notice in verses 23 through 25, David Praise his prayer of deliverance in verse 21 and then gives reasons. Why is it that God should listen to this prayer? He says, for, in verse 22, I am poor and needy. My heart is wounded within me. I am gone like a shadow when it lengthens. I am shaken off like a locust. My knees are weak through fasting. My flesh is feeble through lack of fatness. I have become a reproach to them. When they look at me, they shake their heads. The whole thing is a description of David's uh, weakness, a description even of the Lord Jesus Christ's weakness. That he has, in fact, a very great need for this deliverance. Why is it, then, that the psalmist says, deliver me? It is because I have nowhere else to turn. You are the God who hears the cry of the poor and the needy, and I am one who is like that. And this is exactly the way Christianity is. Christianity is not us looking at a problem and saying, I by my strength have the ability to overcome this obstacle. This is really the way the world speaks. I can do it. I have the strength in and of myself. I will overcome. I need self-confidence. I need strength. I need perseverance. Christianity is exactly the opposite. And here's what what, what um, even the Lord Jesus Christ here is praying. Lord, I have nothing without you. Save me because I am weak. Save me because if you don't, there's nothing that can be done for me. I myself must be saved by you or I cannot be saved. This is, and this is the the reason why this deliverance then, if God uh, has such a deliverance for his people, this is why it gives glory to God, because he is the one who is seen to do it. God saves a weak people for himself. And when he does it, he receives all the glory as the, the defender of the poor. And even then, as the second part where we have the purposes given um, in verses 27 through 29, the answer to the second petition that's given, we see that this is, this is the, this is exactly the emphasis. Save me. Why? Because I'm weak. For what purpose? That your name might be glorified. That is the, the great purpose in verses 27 through 29. Notice that the purpose that they may know that this is your hand, that you Lord have done it. Let them curse, but you bless when they arise, let them be ashamed, but let your servant rejoice. Let my accusers be clothed with shame, and let them cover themselves with their own disgrace as with a mantle. Do this great deliverance for me. Deliver me from the hand of the wicked, that they might see and know that you are the God of my salvation, that you are the God who does it, and that there is no other, that even if they are to curse, yet you will bless and that all of those who are blessed by you, that they themselves rejoice. Let them be put to shame as they look upon their own wickedness and they see the great deliverance and salvation that you grant to your people. This is even in the midst of what we would, what we have a hard time understanding as cursing God's enemies. This is an incredibly godly prayer. It's, it's an incredibly godly prayer. Lord, curse them. Why? That your people might be delivered. Even why there? 
for the sake of the glory of your own name. We are poor and needy, O God. We have nowhere else to turn. Save us that all might see that you are the God who saves his people with a strong and mighty hand. And this is the prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ, and it was exactly answered. It was answered uh, wonderfully by his resurrection from the dead. He was delivered from all of those who oppressed him, and in such a way that God received all the glory. And this then, then as a conclusion to this great and godly prayer, the psalmist breaks forth in praise to God because he knows that God is the one who will do this. He is the one who does stand, as he says in verse 31, stand at the right hand of the poor to save him from those who condemn him to death. And this is a salvation that's guaranteed to you as well if you're in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're in the Lord Jesus Christ, you can pray for deliverance from your enemies. And even if you don't get it in this life, on the last day, you will be openly vindicated. And by the resurrection of the dead, you will be given such a glorious outward appearance that all of those who curse you in this life, they will fall down in shame and cover themselves out, out of the shame and out of weakness as they look upon your glory and vindication. This is the salvation which was won for you in the Lord Jesus Christ. All of those who curse you will be cursed and all of those who bless you will be blessed. Now, as I mentioned at the beginning, there are a number of great and difficult passages in the Bible. And these, some of these kind of passages are some of the most difficult in the Bible. It, it can make us feel uncomfortable. How are we to understand cursing others? We are to recognize that out of a desire for the glory of God, putting the glory of God even ahead of the way we, we look at other people and even compassion for others, out of a desire to see God's name glorified and God's people vindicated, these kinds of prayers can become ours. Think of even Psalm 139. Do I not hate those who hate you? That is really the, the, the way that these things become godly. Out of a, a perspective of having God glorified in everything, we are to say, do I not hate those who hate you, O God? Now, there is, of course, a balance. We do love our enemies as well. We do pray for their good. We pray for their um, conversion. But we recognize as well that our ultimate and first commitment is to God and to his glory. And there are some things when we love them, it means by necessity that we must hate others. If, we, if you love life, you must hate murder. And in the same way, if you love the Lord Jesus Christ, then you must hate all of those who curse him. And that is really the bottom line. If you love the Lord Jesus Christ, then you must hate all those who curse him. May God give you the grace to have such a, a high and exalted view of God that you can even make these kinds of psalms your own prayers for the sake of the glory of his name. Let's pray. Father, how we do pray that you would bless those who bless your people, that you would curse those who curse your people, that we would even see this, this division even in our own lives, that you would, would vindicate your people in the eyes of all, that you would bring to shame all those who would speak against your people, and that even in so doing, Lord, that you would bring many to yourself, that you would get glory for the way in which you rule and defend your people in a way that is just and good. We ask all this in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.
Thanks for listening. If you'd like to find out more about our church, you can visit us at newcovopcssf.com. That's N-E-W-C-O-V-O-P-C-S-S-F dot com. If you'd like to worship with us on Sunday, our service times are 10.30 a.m. and 5 o'clock p.m.